2022, we are going to aim to take our Sundays together to go from Genesis to Revelation. So if you've never been through a study in the scripture, cover to cover, uh, almost to, we're going to probably try and get all the way to the maps in the back of your Bible. That's where we're going to go. Some of you don't even, never had a physical copy of the Bible. You've only used the app, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Um, But really, we're going to try and walk through together Genesis to Revelation, the story of God together, how he is at work in the world. Um, I know we have a lot of questions. We have a lot of thoughts about those things. And really, we want to look at the scripture intentionally together and go, God, how are you working, redeeming, restoring, rescuing, saving people out of sin uh, in the world? And why the Bible? And today, that's really where we're going to be starting, because I believe it's an appropriate question. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone, how would you answer, why the Bible? I mean, some of you are like shaking in your bones, your, your, your boots right now. You're like, I wouldn't know what to say. And that's okay. But why the Bible in a day and an age where there's so much information, so much over-information, Google, YouTube, Twitter, all the places you can go to search for anything you want. Why the Bible? Gandhi, who was not a Christ follower, said this about the scripture. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilizations to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. Why the Bible? Scripture is not simply meant to inform you and me. It's meant for our transformation, the experience of life change that you and I want. Everybody wants transformation. 2022, some of you, you set your resolutions already. Some of you are like, I'm done doing that because I know I can't do it. (laughs) Transformation is not possible on my own. I can't do those things. And so we say, forget it. The scripture was not just meant to inform our lives, but to transform our lives. And the more you look, the more honest you get with yourself, the deeper you look inside for transformation, the quicker you realize it's not there. You and I need an external source that is anchored in something. My opinion, your opinion dies with us. That's no way to build a foundation. You and I, and my heart and your heart, need an anchor to something real and something external. So why the Bible? This may be the most important question a Christ follower has to answer. I know some of you may disagree with me. You may say, well, how can I be saved? That's, that's, what, that's the most important question. Who is Jesus? Or what is God like? Or what am I supposed to do with my life? Those are the most important questions. All of those questions hinge on whether or not they can be trusted off the pages of this text. So why the Bible and why not Harry Potter? Why not the Quran? Why not this blog from some 12-year-old who you found on the internet that has some great ideas, right? Why the Bible? When you've been in conversations, when you hear people say, the Bible's a joke, you can't trust it, the Bible is outdated, you really believe that thing, the Bible is full of hate speech, how can something so old have anything to do with me today? How can I know anything on these pages is true? The Bible was put together by a bunch of old white guys. I'm telling you, you will hear all sorts of opinions. And as a Christ follower, are you able to go, here's why the Bible? 
Two of the worst answers that you can give, and I may step on toes this morning and that's okay. Two of the worst answers that you can give to why the Bible is because I was raised that way. I'm not discrediting your grandmas and your grandpas and your moms and your dads who have raised you in the faith, but everybody was raised away. So you're gonna be able to need to differentiate the difference between what does the scriptures teach and then what does someone else's house teach? Saying because I was raised that way is not enough in a generation and in a world looking for answers. The second worst answer you can give, and I know it's okay to talk about it this way in your story, but to to prove it to someone, to hand someone the information about the scripture, to say, I believe the Bible because I tried it and it changed my life. It's a good answer and maybe a part of your story. But a lot of people have tried a lot of things and have a lot of change has happened in a lot of people's lives. And so to say trying something and it changing my life, you are putting the Bible in equality with anything else somebody else might try. But I don't think we think about those things when we're trying to engage a generation that may or may not know how they can trust anything. We live in a very uh, a non-trusting day. Everybody's been let down, everybody's been hurt, everybody's been dropped, everybody's been forgotten, everybody's... So we trust very little. And the question is, are there evidences that are given to you and me that will allow us to trust the scriptures? If you are a believer in this room, one who's put their trust in what Christ has done, you need to be able to answer this question. And if you are a skeptic in this room, you are right to ask this question. Why the Bible? Why not Confucius? Why not the Quran? Why not this? Why not? Are you a right to ask these questions? They are good and appropriate when trying to figure out if something is worth giving your life to. So if we can pray for just a moment, I, I would love to, because I know sometimes these things can stir things up, and we really do need the Holy Spirit's strength and power to focus our minds and our hearts that we might hear him. Father, I ask that in these moments, as we discuss a text that the world has tried to rip apart for centuries, but it is still standing. Lord, there is street cred to this word. There is history, there is blood that has been poured out so that you and me and and this church, Lord, we are able to read these words. It is not an insignificant text. May you stir our hearts to long to hear your voice more than any other voice in this world. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now, I do not believe that just giving somebody some solid evidence about the Bible is going to cause them to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but I need you to understand that God has not asked you and I to blindly believe him. Blind faith, I mean, people, I mean, I have heard people give definitions that faith is believing something that's not true. That's ridiculous, right? But I do believe there's a part of us that's like, well, I just believe something because, you know, it makes me feel good or this or that or the other. The power of knowing that what you believe is anchored in evidences matters. We live in a shaky world, a wind and war-torn world, a rainy storm world, and the human heart was made to stand on something solid. And so you and I as Christ followers must be able to give a defense. And I don't want to make very clear. It is not my job this morning to defend the Bible. I kind of picture it like the theologians of old did. You don't defend a lion. 
You know what you do with a lion? You get out of the way and let the lion do its thing. I don't need to defend the Bible, but boy, do I love being able to tell people you can trust the text that are on these pages that we have in our hands what the authors intended for us to hold. I want you to be able to be excited and rooted and firm about why Jesus is who he says he is and why you can believe who Jesus says he is. That's what I enjoy. That's what I want to be a part of. I'm not defending anything because the Bible does its work. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of people trying to destroy it, and it's still here. It's the power of his word. Vodi Bakum, a pastor, apologist, professor, missionary, he said these words, and I think it's a good, succinct sentence for you and I to go, why the Bible? And I'll put this on our website, and I'll put this in our Facebook page. You don't have to copy it word for word. I know it's a lot, but he says this. This is one pregnant statement of why the Bible. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim their writings are divine and not of human origin. I don't have time to break down the entire statement, but it is a fantastic baseline for you and I to begin to go, okay, why the Bible? Why the scriptures over every other text that speaks, that people have put their trust in, that people have looked to for change and light and enlightenment? Why the Bible? The reliable collection of historical documents matters to the eyewitnesses written by eyewitnesses during eyewitnesses' lifetimes. Here's why this matters. Everything about the Christian story hinges on historical events that actually occurred in first century Israel. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a fable. It is not a Harry Potter, C.S. Lewis kind of thing. Everything about the Christian walk hinges on real people in real places in real time. If those things don't happen, if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are a fairy tale, then we are still dead in our sins. Paul said it. He made it real clear. If Jesus hasn't resurrected, we need to close up shop, go home, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. This is why this matters. Reliability of these letters, can it be tested? And the answer is yes. Textual criticism. Now, this is where I start to nerd out, and I'm sorry if your eyes roll back in your head, but I'm gonna be really quick really quick when it comes to textual criticism. Textual criticism is the science by which we can determine what was originally written by the ancient author. I know you're like, woohoo, I'm so excited. I'm gonna go get a shirt that says textual criticism. You won't, but it'd be cool if you did. If you do, if you find a person who sells those, let me get one, because I want one. Now, in arguments, and when I have sat with teenagers and I've sat with adults, they have looked at me and they're just like, I just, I can't believe the Bible because science, you just can't prove it by science. I need you to understand something. If that's your argument, you need to understand how science works. Science needs to be observable, repeatable, and you have to be able to observe it, right? Historical documents are proved in another way. 
Okay? The Bible does not claim to be a scientific book. While there are things that line up next to each other, and you're like, whoa, this is amazing. Historical documents are studied in a way that's a little different. Can you test the reliability of those who have written things down? How verifiable are those accounts? You begin to do kind of like a, a crime scene or a courtroom investigation. Not science. I can't repeat what's already happened. But can I trust the words of those who have recorded what's happened? That's what textual criticism begins to do. And for those of you that are in middle school and high school, next time your teachers start looking at ancient literature, go, how can we trust those words or what we are supposed to hear? They'll be like, because, I promise you. But this is the study. People have actually put effort to understand how do we trust these pages. Textual criticism does two things. First, they consider the number of manuscripts, okay? This is important. And for those of you that don't know, everything was hand copied before the year 1500, okay? There was no Siri, there was no take a note, there was no computers, there was no printing, there was no typing things out. Everything was hand copied before 1500, okay? So, how many manuscripts do we have? And the idea works this way. If someone is tasked with writing down an important document, the chances are they might get a little sleepy. They might miss a word or write a, uh, write a word incorrectly or maybe even change something on their own because they're like, I didn't like that, right? And so the idea of testing how many manuscripts you have would be this. If somebody did that, but there are more copies of copies of copies, then you can go back and line them up next to each other and go, oh, that one's off. None of these suggest that. We don't have to use this one. All of these older ones, they do line up. So we can know that's what the author intended. Does that make sense, right? The more manuscripts you have, the better research and study you can do. So let's compare other classical texts that none of your English teachers even bat an eye at, okay? Number of manuscripts, and you can see them right here. You may not even care about these numbers, but I do. They make me so excited, and I hope they make you excited, okay? So Plato, the works of Plato, nobody questions. We have seven copies, seven manuscripts. And this doesn't just include whole works. This includes fragments. So one of those seven could just be a fragment of a piece of paper, right? So seven. Caesar, Julius Caesar's works, 10. Aristotle, 49. Homer's Iliad, 643. You guys read that in English in high school, right? Maybe you raise your hand next time. How do we know these words are really what Homer wrote down, right? You can start messing with your teachers. It's okay. And then you can send them to me, all right? So here's, here's what we got. The average classical piece of literature has about 20 manuscripts in existence. How does the New Testament fare? You can see. 6,000 Greek New Testament copies, manuscripts exist in the world, right? 20 to 25,000 early translations that were Coptic, Syriac, um, Arabic, all these different languages that exist in the first several centuries of the scripture, of the New Testament's existence. This last one is pretty fascinating too. One million quotations of the scripture from our early church fathers. That means, and they've, they've done the research, that if we had no copies or no manuscripts left of the New Testament, because of the early church, fathers quoting it, we could put an entire New Testament together. It's fascinating. The Lord has put his thumbprint across the centuries 
to let you know he intended for us to have this in our hands. No, right? Man. But it's not just the number of manuscripts. Consider the time between manuscripts, because that matters too. The argument goes this way. Let's say my journal entry right here. So let's say my journal entry here. Let's say my oldest son, because I know in his spare time, is always really wanting to copy my journal entries down. <laughs> That's what he's always wanting to do. He's wanting to, he's wanting to copy my journal entries down on his own all the time, right? He says, I'm going to copy dad's journal entry. He copies it down. He gets a little sleepy, may miss a word, may misspell a word, and kind of maybe messes around. And then, let's say Zeke has kids of his own, and they make a copy of his copy of my autograph, right? And they start to copy his errors down, and they make some errors down, right? And so the, the, the argument is, if the manuscript copy is farther from the original, chances are you're going to have a little more mistakes, does that make sense, right? Like, of a thousand years between the original and the manuscript is what we have, a thousand years is a long time. Who knows if the, 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 the words are verifiable or they're authentic or they're real, right? So the idea is, shorter the distance between the original and the copy, you have this beautiful opportunity to go, hmm, it's probably closer than we think. So let's look at those, those early manuscripts again. The works of Plato, nobody bats an eye at, Written between 427 and 347 BC, the earliest is from 8900. That's 1,200 years between the originals were written and the first manuscript that we have. So y'all should be questioning your teachers. How we know Plato really wrote that, right? Just do it. It's fun. It'll be fun. Caesar, date written 100 to 44 BC. That's when they suggest earliest manuscript we have is 8900. That's 1,000 years between, right? Aristotle, date written between 384 and 322, earliest is from AD 1100, 1400 years from the original to the first copy that we have. Let's take Homer and the Iliad, date written 900 BC, earliest copy we have is from 400 BC, 500 years. So that's pretty good, right? How does the New Testament fare against these classical pieces of literature? Liberal and conservative theologians suggest that the New Testament was completed before 100 AD, okay? This matters in the life of the church. The earliest manuscript we have is from 200 AD, right? That means the time between is less than 100 years. This is, this is a big deal in textual criticism when you're studying ancient texts and ancient literature. For you and I, if Jesus is crucified in AD 30, and the New Testament is completed by 100 AD. That means 70 years between the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the New Testament works being completed. It was written during the times when people could actually refute what was being written down. And we have zero ancient texts suggesting anything but the truth of the scriptures being recorded. This matters. And I know some of you are like, well, I just wanna believe because I wanna believe. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you need to become a student of the scripture to go, why can I believe this to be true? Why can I hold that Jesus' resurrection really matters? Why can I walk with faith and hope in a world that is war-torn and falling to pieces? Because we can trust that what the author intended for us to hold in our hands is right here. It is right 
here. And I know that's a lot, and I know that, I know for some of you, it may or may not matter, but for somebody that walks with you, these type of things will matter. And like I said, I don't know that being able to affirm the validity of these words on these pages is gonna cause somebody to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but can we trust the texts that house the story? Yes. The evidence and the verification of the text saying what the text needs to say, that's all there, right? What people are gonna question is the sufficiency of it. They're gonna question, is it really enough? And that's the human heart. That's where God's spirit steps in and changes us and molds us and shapes us and transforms us as we get into his word. I know that through the idea is that there's more copies and copies and copies. And I've heard students say this. Well, you just can't trust it because it's been translated so many times. Well, if you play it like this, if you play it like the telephone game, you can go to the next one, sorry. If you play it like the telephone game, this is how it works, right? That monkey is cool. You whisper it in somebody's ear, they change it. You whisper it in somebody else's ear. And final is Mr. Manatee is a fool. Like somehow it gets changed all the way down. So people are like, well, it's been just translated so many times. You just can't trust that it's there. That's part of that is okay to understand. It's okay. Yes, we do have lots of copies. But the beautiful thing about textual criticism is, show them the next slide. All of them can go back to the sources. Everyone has access to the sources. You don't have to just go, well, we're going to make a copy of that guy's copy. You can go back and test them, line them up. And good scripture, good Bibles, good study Bibles will actually tell you, hey, when there's a discrepancy or when there's a disagreement about a word being translated this way or that way, they'll tell you. They'll let you know. You can look at it and go, oh, okay, so there's some debate about this one word. But it doesn't change the theological meaning. It, changes, it may change a little something about what that word might mean, but that's it. That's the beauty of being able to research and put your thumb on and go, man, thank you, Lord, that you did those things. Why the Bible? Again, I ask you. It's the best-selling book of all time, 25 million copies a year, sold 2.5 billion copies. Hmm, I think I'll read one, right? Like, that's what we say. Translated into more than 2,200 languages. It bridges gaps between people, politics, cultures, and history. One of the other reasons that I believe this text has street credit is because of the diversity represented in this text. It was written over 1,500 years by three, on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, at least 40 different authors from all kinds of life, kings, scholars, poor, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, teachers, prophets, doctors. You talk about a diverse text. It's beautifully diverse. And I know that we have hangups with the scripture, but the power of God's word just continues to transform and transform. And as diverse as it is in its makeup, it is incredibly united in its theme. From Genesis to Revelation, written over 1,500 years, you would think people would get mixed up in what they were talking about. Not one time. The scripture captures from Genesis to Revelation God's redemptive work in history. Man's fall from sin, fall in sin, falling from glory, but God's saying, I'm not done with you. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna restore you. I'm gonna redeem you, and I'm gonna make all things new. It's his plan at work in the world. That is what makes this so beautiful for you and I to walk away with today, is that I can trust 
that what the author intended for me to hear is here. Now will I put my trust in the words of the author. That's where the transformation becomes real. Second Peter chapter 1 For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Why the Bible? I gave you the external reasons, but there's an internal reason in the Scripture because it claims to be divine. When a book makes these kind of boastful claims, as human beings, we have every right to investigate it. Second Timothy, he says this, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do, to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Do you look at the scripture that way? Like he's preparing you to do the good works that he's made you to do? Do you, or do you just go, that book just tries to ruin my fun. God told me not to murder. Man, I really want murder. No, God told me not to steal people's stuff, but I really want that guy's stuff. God's just a killjoy. No. He's preparing his people to live in the world that he created that is meant to be lived in. And as his people, do we rejoice that he's prepared us through his words to do every good thing he's prepared for us to do. As the band comes, we close our time this morning. The Bible claims to reveal what God is like, how we can know him, what God desires for the world, why we exist, what we're to do with evil in the world. How do you respond as evil, you see evil at work in this world? How does your heart respond? How do you respond? What are we to do with the guilt and the shame that we carry from our own lives? Is there any hope? A text that claims to deal with these heart-level things is worth the inspection. It's worth diving into. It's worth considering. The primary question about the scripture for you and I is not what do I think about it, but the scripture, the question we get to ask is what does God want us to know? When you open the words of God in, in, you know, tomorrow morning, or maybe you, you've started your New Year reading plan already, have you, do you open it with the expectation of, God, what do you want me to know today? You don't want me to be blind to the things of this world. You don't want me to be blind to your desires. You don't want me to be uh, isolated from, from the church. You want me to hear your voice, and you want to speak. What do you want to say? Do you meet him with that kind of anticipation? Are you like, well... He's probably busy doing something else. He's not gonna talk to me today. That's why I love his spirit and the presence of God. Jesus made it very clear for you and I 
the key to knowing the scripture and understanding the scripture is Jesus. We have a hard time with the Old Testament. We have a hard time putting the New Testament and Old Testament together and figuring it out. That's because we try and do it, we do it without Jesus. Jesus made it really clear to the disciples. Do you remember when they were walking after he had been crucified and they were complaining, they were whining, they were crying, they were like, we thought he was the guy, but now he's dead. And Jesus is like, tell me more about this guy who you thought was the Messiah, right? He's walking alongside them. They don't even recognize him because he's raised. And they're like, well, we thought he was the guy and we put our trust in him and now he's not here. And Jesus responds to them this way. He says, you foolish people. He's talking to his disciples. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the what? Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before he entered into his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus took them on the journey to show them how to make sense of this text the announcement that a rescuer is coming, a Messiah has come, one who would put all things right and that would bring relationship to people who didn't think they had a chance. In John chapter five, he tells the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scripture points to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The power of the scripture is that it points to Jesus the purpose of the scripture is to bring you and me into relationship with Jesus. The point of this text is to bring us into relationship with God. An invitation that each one of us, each one of our brains and our hearts needs to come to a decision on. Is it true? Is there evidence for it? Can I believe it? And I would say the answer is yes. Why do I believe that all scripture is God-inspired? Well, first, it claims to be, and I know that's not enough for some of us, but I've also seen that it seems to be. You do the historical research and the historical readings, and you're just like, oh my goodness, the people who gave their lives so that this would end up in our hands, incredible stories of God's faithfulness and people's sacrifice so that the next generation would hear these words. Not only does it seem to be, but as I've put it into practice in the last 20 years of my life, it has proved to be the words of God. Many of you can relate to that. And this morning I'm asking you to consider as you go into 2022 and we walk through this text together that you would spend 10 minutes, if that, just 10 minutes going, Lord, all right, all right, teach me. They even have apps on your phone right now that you can download and they'll read it to you. The Dwell app, you can download the Dwell app and they will read you the Bible. You can download the City Lights app. It's a great app. I actually really enjoy the City Lights app. But you can, you can download these and listen to the words of God. If you don't like reading, enough with the excuses. There's plenty of options to say, God, if your word really is meant to bring me into relationship with you, Show me, teach me. Matthew 24, Jesus said, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Why the Bible? Father, thank you so much for loving us, 
for being the one who saw us floundering, guessing at what you were like, trying to do works that might bring us into relationship with you, but you said it is by faith that many will be made righteous. And I pray for this group of people this morning that are, whether they're joining us online or they are here in this room, that God, your spirit would move us to not just listen, but to be doers of your word. God, even when we don't understand, may we, may we wrestle with these things and not wrestle alone, may we wrestle in community with your words. God, there are hard things in the scripture, but there are very clear things in the scripture. May we not be nitpickers of the hard things. May we be believers of the things you've made clear. Help us as a heavenly father speaking to his children. May we believe you. It's in your name we pray.